All right, as we, um, uh, if you have your Bible or a phone or some device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We're going to be in Luke's, Luke chapter 3 and 4. Um, as we gather on Easter, um, I think it's important, especially after the last couple years, um, that we're reminded not to take this for granted, right? Like it, it, whether we look at um, the fact that we have Ukrainian brothers and sisters, um, really Russian brothers and sisters this morning, um, who Easter looks differently than they would have anticipated. If we think back to two years ago um, in the inability to meet um, due to COVID, that we don't want to take for granted that we get to be together, um, that we get together and celebrate with freedom that Jesus is alive, that he has defeated sin and death, and that he has walked out of the tomb, and that this morning that we can cry out to him, that we can sing to him, that we can pray to him. And so we, we want to do that um, as we gather on Sunday mornings, but we also want to be reminded that, that we can do that through the week, right? As we, um, as we are in the Word, as we um, have meals with one another, as we are on mission, um, that we are making much of King Jesus because we are recipients of grace that has come some 2,000 years across cultures, across languages, from generation to generation has been passed on to us, um, that the Lord has rescued and redeemed and saved. And so we want to celebrate that um, significance, that, that victory, that hope today. And listen, there are all sorts of um, various ways that we could look at the significance of Easter and the impact that it's had um, and, and why we celebrate it in the way that we do. Um, and so this morning, we're going to be in Luke 3 and 4. And if you haven't been with us, we, we preach through a book of the Bible, just kind of week in and week out. Um, we've been in Luke for a few weeks, and so we're, we're staying there this morning. But I think even as we read these three kind of seemingly um, disjointed, not connected stories, that you're going to see that they are, they're actually tied together and that they give us Easter hope this morning. And so if you have your Bible, we'll begin in Luke 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And we have a long genealogy here. Um, we're going to skip down to verse 38. Um, and as it ends, this long genealogy, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and continue into chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. 
And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now remember, as we're in Luke now, that that Luke is being written um, to Theophilus, the patron of the book, who's a Roman official, who is having some some doubts and concerns. And this is being written to give him assurance and hope and peace. Um, It's the same um, reason that we would spend time in Luke, because it's an orderly account from the time of John the Baptist through Luke um, in the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus and His ascension into Acts and the early church for a generation. And so Luke is writing, um, having talked to um, all the eyewitnesses, having done his research as a second generation believer, um, and it's going to cover really up until the end of the first century between Luke and Acts. And so we've seen the angelic encounters so far as, as John the Baptist has entered the scene, as Jesus has entered the scene. Last week we saw John's baptism of repentance, that he is preparing the way for the Messiah, the coming one, right? And he's calling the nation of Israel back to him, back to God, saying, just because you're Israel doesn't mean you know God. Right? And he's he's calling them to repentance, to trust God. And we, we saw in the end last week that he was thrown into prison, John was. And so in verse 21, we have this really short um, anecdote of Jesus' baptism. And Lucas, uh, Luke's um, focus here is going to be primarily not on the baptism, but on what is um, signified by Jesus' baptism. Look at what he says. Now when all the people were baptized, and he's not referring to all folks everywhere, right? But he's saying, listen, he's, he's giving us um, kind of some hyperbolic speech and he's showing us the completion of John's ministry. Um, Luke 7.30 would show us that not everyone was baptized. But he says, when all the people were baptized, the end kind of of John's ministry, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, like that's literally all he gives us, and he just kind of moves on. The highlight here wasn't Jesus' baptism, but it's what comes after. But I want us to make a quick note here. Why was Jesus being baptized by John? Right? John's baptism that he's called the people to was a baptism of repentance, right? Of saying, hey, you need to repent and turn back to God. That's the call from Malachi. That's the call from early in Luke. Um, But that repentance was only a portion of the baptism. The other portion was this, that it was was preparing themselves to trust God, to be ready for what God was going to do. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's not repenting. He doesn't have sin to repent of. But he is showing, I am trusting God in what he's about to do as well. And he is identifying himself with sinners. And he's endorsing the ministry of John who has prepared the way for him. And so John's ministry is now complete. And what we see then is that Luke then is going to give us what he really wants us to notice in verse 22. That the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? That the, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. He doesn't say that it was a dove. It was like a dove. A dove being common, right? graceful, but common, simple. Right? It wasn't um, an eagle or a hawk from on high, like this ferocious, fierce thing right? that, that Jesus was going to come and conquer Rome. It wasn't a flamboyant bird. 
right, with a lot of color. It was simple, and it was common, because it's going to be symbolic of Jesus' ministry. It is simple, and it's common, and it's grace-filled, not extravagant or fierce. He's not saying that Jesus at this point didn't have the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit is coming to confirm this is the one you've been looking for. It's an affirmation from the Spirit. And we have this moment here where it says, and a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Remember, prior to John the Baptist coming on the scene, God has really been silent for some 400 plus years. Right? They've been waiting and anticipating God speaking once again. And if we look at Isaiah 64, verse 1, we have this, this, this word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. It means tear. Oh, that you would rend, that you would tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence. Right? There was this expectation and hope. God, would you, would you open up the heavens and meet your people? God, would you open up the heavens and bring us back to you? We need you. And now here, after some 400 years of silence, the heavens are torn. They're, they're being rend. And... God is speaking. And listen to what He says. You're my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Like God is no longer silent. He is speaking. The heavens have been torn. And Jesus is being endorsed, affirmed, confirmed as the Messiah. So we then immediately go into a lengthy genealogy. Right? Like there's some 70 plus names mentioned here. And you're going, okay, why, why would Luke go from a quick baptism into a genealogy? This feels strange. And, and he says, look, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He was about 30 years of age. And then he takes us through all of these generations. Now, some have gone back and tried to say we can, we can actually um, age the earth through this because it goes back to Adam. The issue is that some of these um, are, it means descendant of, or grandson of, or son of. It's not necessarily each individual generation being passed along here. But it culminates, right? He goes back to Abraham, and then he continues, and he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the beginning of time, through Adam to God. And what he's doing here is he's not ultimately showing us um, his ethnicity, but he's connecting him to his humanity. This is the divine, right, Son of God and Son of Man, who's connected, who's human, but who is divine. If we go all the way back to Adam, we have a parallel to Jesus, because as Jesus, right, is the um, supposed son of Joseph, right, because and Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, that Adam, too, did not have a biological father. He was created by the hand of God Himself. And so what He's doing is He's drawing our attention back to Adam, this one who was first set on the scene by the hand of God Himself, who didn't have a biological father. And He's drawing our attention to Jesus, who, too, doesn't have a biological father, but it's right the, the hand of God here that is taking place. He's wanting to draw our attention to it which would immediately make you think of Adam when when you think of Adam, you quickly think of failure, right? You think of his inability to withstand temptation, him and Eve, in the garden. 
and that they brought, brought sin into the world and a curse upon the world because they did not trust God. And so Luke is drawing our attention to that um, specifically wanting us to consider and to think about the temptation that came to Adam. Because as we move into chapter 4, we enter into the temptation of Jesus. He wants us thinking of the temptation of Adam and his inability to succeed there as we look at the temptation of Jesus. There's a real battle taking place, a real enemy, and we're, we're introduced here um, to Jesus in the wilderness um, and, and the devil now engaging him in battle. And so as we have considered Adam, right, a son of God, created at the hand of God, we consider the fact that he lived nourished and well-kept in paradise. Right? He had everything he needed at his, at his beck and call with one rule, that there was one tree not to partake of. And he was asked to trust God in that. And he fails. He and Eve fail to trust God. They believe that they can somehow obtain something that God is holding out from them, that they can shortchange the situation, and that maybe God isn't giving them all that they should have, all that they deserve, and they fail to trust God. And so sin and brokenness enters the world. Right? Broken relationships, broken with God. We have a need that we cannot meet that happens because of this. But what's interesting is the nation of Israel in Exodus 4, is also called the Son of God. Right? As, as Pharaoh is being talked to, as he has enslaved the people of God, right? it said, hey, let Israel, my son, my firstborn son, go. Like he's looking to redeem his people, Israel. This is Exodus 4, 22 and 23. And as they're rescued out of, of Egypt, where do they go? They go into the wilderness. And so unlike Adam, they're not in a paradise or a garden, but they've been taken as the firstborn of God into the wilderness. And what do they quickly do? Even though they've been rescued from one of the world's great superpowers, they go out into the desert and they start complaining and grumbling and groaning and saying, did you take us out of Egypt where we were enslaved and crying out for help to bring us into the wilderness to die? And they just don't get it. And so God provides food and God provides water, and God provides miraculous protection, all of these things, and they continue to say every time He meets them, okay, God, thanks. Oh, but what about now? Are you gonna, can we trust you now? Are you going to provide now? What are you going to do for me now? And they grumble, and they, and they complain. And listen to how this is recounted. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord led... The Lord your God has led you now these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and He let you hunger and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Right? Some of you are thinking, that sounds like great news. Um, but as they're grumbling and complaining, they failed in the wilderness. They grieved the Spirit of God because they continually did not trust Him, His faithfulness and His provision, although He miraculously provided time and time and time again. And so, we now have Jesus, the beloved Son of God, in the wilderness. Again, drawing our attention not just to Adam in temptation, but to, to Israel in the wilderness themselves. 
and where Adam was nourished and provided for, where Israel was given all that they could have needed even in the wilderness, we see this of Jesus. That he ate nothing during these days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Like, what an understatement here, right? That after these 40 days, he was hungry. He's drawing our attention to his humanity. So the devil says, listen, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. He's not really questioning, are you the Son of God? It's one of those ways where he's using his language to try to just say, we know you are, but it's like trying to cast doubt. If you are, prove it. If you are, show it. Can you really trust the Father to provide? Is he really going to give you what you need? Is he really going to do it? Because you can. Just make it Just make it bread, and you'll be good. Just make it bread. And Jesus responds, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Right? He, just, he responds with Scripture, and he, he shuts the devil down here. He's trusting that God is caring for him, and will provide for him, and will take care of him. He's succeeding where Adam didn't. He's succeeding where Israel didn't in the wilderness with more difficult circumstances. We see him winning. He's proving right that he can trust God's faithfulness. And the question for us this morning is this, right? Is that's what it's what sin is for us? Is do we trust God or not? Because when we sin, what we're saying is we don't trust God. That there is something that we're lacking that we need, and God won't provide it. And so whether it's pleasure, God's not going to give me the pleasure I want, so I'll go find it and I'll do it myself. I'll get what I need. Right? It, it's sin is when we say, God, we don't trust you. We don't think you're good. We don't think you'll provide. We don't think you're faithful, so we'll take care of it ourselves. And we look to circumvent and to shortchange God just like Adam and Eve did. Or we grumble and we complain and say, God, are you good? Are you sufficient? Are you enough? Like Israel did. We ask the question, is he? Is he good? Will he provide? I'll do it myself. We'll do it ourselves. And yet Jesus here meets the temptation in more difficult circumstances and comes through. But Satan is not done with him. And he basically he goes and takes him up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and says, Listen, I'm going to give you a shortcut. Right? You don't have to go through suffering. You don't have to go to the cross. You want the glory of the world. You want the approval of man. I'll offer it to you. Now, Satan's a deceiver. He's a liar. Right? He, he's got some um, control in the world, but this is not an equal battle. Anything he has, it's because it's been given to him for a time by God. But he's looking to say, listen, if you want the glory, I'll give it to you. Just bow your knee and worship me. The peoples will rejoice in you, and you can avoid the cross. You don't have to do that. There's no suffering. There's no pain. He's looking to rob God of His glory, and He's looking to rob you of your salvation. And Jesus says, from Deuteronomy 6, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. So the question then for us this morning is, where do we give our worship? You're giving your worship this morning to someone or something. Now, maybe yourself. It may be something that you've, you long for, but you are giving your ultimate appreciation, your worship, your enjoyment, your glory to something. We are all worshipers. And Jesus is reminding us, 
belongs to God. To God alone. And then he tempts him a third and final time here. And what's interesting is that he actually, now that Jesus has quoted Scripture back to the devil twice, the devil tries a new tactic and he quotes Scripture to Jesus. It says he took him to Jerusalem, verse 9, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to them, if you're the Son of God, he goes back to that language, throw yourself down from here. So he's basically saying, like, throw yourself down, right? Because it would kill you. All right? So you're setting yourself up here for the people to see who you are. For it is written, and he begins to quote from Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And just a quick aside here. Just because Scripture is quoted doesn't mean it's being quoted with the right intent, with the right heart, right? And so Scripture can be misused and misapplied and weaponized. Just because someone has a verse to back up what they're saying doesn't mean they're correct. Because the devil here is saying, listen, hey, God will rescue you. The thing is, church, he could have done the same thing at the cross. He could have had a legion of angels come and take him off and care for him. Wipe out those who were looking to destroy him. He could have removed himself from pain and death and suffering, right? And he would have been okay, but we would not have been. We would not have been redeemed. And so Jesus responds now. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he is quoting um, from Deuteronomy 6.16. Um, and, and one of the places where he's referencing is, is Exodus 7, right? Where the people um, have been once again saying, hey God, what are you going to do for us? We're dying of thirst. How are you going to help us? And, and they strike the rock and water comes forth. But they had been bitter and grumbling and complaining about it. They were testing God, saying, yeah, you've done this for us. Yeah, you've done this for us. Yeah, you've done this for us. But what have you done for me today? They were testing God, asking for another sign, another miracle. And Jesus tells Satan, I'm not testing God. I have a plan before me. It's a plan of redemption. It's a rescue plan right? that includes His suffering on our behalf. Includes our rescue. It's why we look at Good Friday and the worst day in human history, right? We call it good because our redemption was secured. Because the Son of Man was lifted up on our behalf, in our place as a substitute for us. That what we deserved as those who have not trusted God, who have not trusted His faithfulness, who have rejected Him, who have offered our worship to others, who have done these things to displease Him, we're not nailed to the cross of Jesus, the innocent One, the Son of God, the beloved Son, with whom He is well pleased, was in our place. But because He was innocent, holy, and just, three days later, He walks out of the tomb, having defeated our enemies, sin, and Satan, and death, and has secured a path right, as to make us adopted sons and daughters of the King. Because He doesn't give in to the temptation. He is obedient. He is faithful. He succeeds where Adam and Eve didn't. He succeeds where the nation of Israel did not. Listen, the heavens were rent. They were torn open here when God speaks and affirms Jesus. 
And then a second tearing happens when Jesus is crucified. The veil in the, in the temple is torn, right? Signifying not only has God not, is no longer silent because He spoke at the baptism of Jesus, now the separation, the divide that we have between God and man has been torn because Jesus has secured what we cannot secure on our own behalf. And our enemies have now been defeated and He has put Satan to open shame. Here Satan is offering glory to Jesus. And instead, he is put to open shame because where it looks like he wins at the cross, Jesus is victorious, and we are the beneficiaries of it. And that is why today we celebrate that our King is alive, that He is faithful and He is just, and He has done what He promised He would do. He has restored a path to God, and He has made us heirs to the kingdom, sons and daughters to adopted into the family, belonging without deserving it, without earning it, through His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness. And so what is happening here is we're going to begin now the public ministry of Jesus in the weeks to come as we continue Luke. Right? In the story of redemption, the story of His success and His obedience... We see here that He is reversing what has taken place. He is, in His obedience, He's reversing the curse. He's reversing sin. He's reversing brokenness. He's reversing death. He is setting right what we desperately need set right so that we are restored to the Father. And Jesus is going to secure it for us. So church, this morning, would we be reminded that Jesus identified Himself with sinners, of which we all are, in order to make us right with the Father, to give us peace and hope and joy in His righteousness, not based on our merit, but based on His. So He was baptized to identify Himself with, with sinners, and He was affirmed as the Son of God. We're then reminded in His genealogy that He was both divine and human. <laughs> And then here we see him righting the wrongs, reversing it as he is tempted and is successful. He has come for us, and he has won the day. And so as Luke will end his gospel in chapter 24 with this. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Right? Like that we are recipients of that good news that Luke ends this letter with. That Jesus was crucified and suffered, that He arose, and that now we share that good news that the repentance is available, that the forgiveness of sins is here. And we have received that. Folks, Jesus was born in a no-name place. Was from a no-name place. That He had to remind the nation of Israel, you know that place, right? It's, it's this tiny little place. And here we are, speaking another language, 2,000 years later, in a different culture, being reminded this morning that we can trust God. That He is just, that He is faithful, and that He will keep His promises. There is grace and mercy for you. And so this morning, if your worship is on something other than Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, 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 God is worthy of it. 
If you're, if you're unsure if you can trust Him in the midst of your circumstances, Jesus is saying you can trust Him. If you're unsure right, of whether you can hope in Him, He's saying I've secured what you need and I've defeated your enemies. And you can trust Him. He is faithful and He will keep His Word. And so this morning, the band is going to come back up. And we get to sing to our King who hears our cries, who hears our songs and receives them as worship. And, and, and the Lord's Supper is set up. Listen, I know the room is full, um, but what we're going to do is over the next three songs, you're free as an individual or as a family or with friends to get up and move and take the Lord's Supper. Right? The Lord's Supper is for those who this morning are trusting that Jesus is the only means of righteousness they have. The only reason they have security and peace and hope with God is because Jesus has secured it through His life in our place, His death in our place, and His resurrection on our behalf. And so there's, the table is set up in five locations around the room. So you just kind of move to the one that's closest to you, taking the juice, reminded that it was His blood spilt so that yours isn't. Taking the cracker, reminded that it was His body broken so that yours isn't. And this morning, for those of us in Christ, we are recipients and heirs to the kingdom because of King Jesus. And so let's pray, let's sing, let's worship, let's celebrate, let's take the cup and the juice and the bread because He is alive today. Church, we are a joyous people because of this good news. Let me pray for us and we'll enter a time of worship and response. Father, this morning, would You um, open our minds to the truths of Your Word, of Your Scripture. God, that we would not nod in mere uh, mental affirmation at them, but that our hearts would be um, torn, that our hearts would be broken open, that You would remove our cold and stony hearts of sin and replace them with soft, malleable hearts that are stamped with You. God, that we would hear You calling our name and we would respond in trust and obedience because You are faithful. God, would we know that it's not our ability to be obedient that saves us, but it is the fruit of obedience and repentance because You've saved us. God, would You be pleased with our worship? Would Your Spirit work and move and maneuver among us right now? God, that we would put our faith and our trust in You because You're faithful. Because you're alive. Because you've done what you said you would do and you're coming for us. In Jesus' name, amen.